นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะOf uh, Saint Benedict and the Buddhist monastic tradition is something that I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with, and it was a treat to hear. And also, uh, Rolf's mother was was asking about this this rule that we have of not eating after midday, and what is the uh, the philosophical uh, meaning, the essence of of this rule. This discipline that we observe, and and so in trying to explain it, trying to make sense of it, you know, I pointed out that there's the original story of how this rule came about. If you like the um, the form of the the, the rule, the, how at the time of the Buddha. Some of the less mindful, considerate monks who are going on alms round in the village in the evening, and and uh, at a time when uh, the lay people didn't necessarily want to have <coughs> these boring monks around, they were busy cooking dinner and having parties and whatever, and they didn't want to have these monks coming and interrupting them. And and uh, there's uh, an actual story of of where a a woman um, who was pregnant at the time. Uh, Saw a monk walking in the shadows and thought it was a ghost and and was freaked out by this and and ended up having a miscarriage and and certainly that was uh, a good enough reason for the Buddha to say rather the monks don't go bindabat in the village in the evening anymore and so we have these this aspect to all of the rules that we have for the, you know, the, like the as I said the form the material aspect but the, and there's also the Spiritual aspect or the essence of the rule, and the essence of this training of not eating the evening is, as I'm sure everybody really understands, is renunciation. The ability to say no when we need to. Is, um, something that all of us need to learn at some stage of life, and it's a big part of parenting. We're, The job of the parents when bringing up the children is to say no for the children because the children don't know how to say no yet. 
So if a parent's doing their job properly, they say no just to the right amount at the right time and until the kids learn to say no for themselves. And so, for instance, that beautiful fire there that's flickering away you know, from the one perspective, it looks very pretty. It looks like something to play with. And so the child wants to go and put their hand in the fire and, and of course, mummy and daddy are there to say, no, you don't do that. And, and you know, presumably the kids' faculties are not sophisticated enough to start having a reasoned debate with a kid about why they shouldn't stick their hand in the fire, so you just say no for them. And this, is, this, is, this is what parents do. They train the children to recognise when to say no. And if the parents are doing a good enough job, then the children get the message and they learn to internalise some sense of boundaries and grow up to be sufficiently, hopefully, adequate uh, integrated human beings. Well, the task doesn't end with just uh, material matters. It also goes on to spiritual matters where we have these habits, these inclinations of heart, these selfish impulses, which, from one perspective, seem very, very attractive. They really, yeah, I'd like to just follow this, this impulse to tell somebody what I think of them. You know, I just don't like their face or their smell or or their accent or whatever. I just want to just tell them about it. Well, maybe from one perspective, that feels like the right thing to do. But if we don't know how to say no to our impulses, then we end up, unfortunately, hurting ourselves and hurting others. And so, so the spiritual discipline of, of being able to say no when we need to say no is really important. And, and ultimately, of course, what we're moving towards is this ability to let go. That we're not driven by our conditioned habits of grasping. Grasping at things that appear beautiful. It might be okay if you're momentarily holding on to a pleasant taste or a pleasant sight or a pleasant sound, but the difficulty comes that when we grasp at pleasure, we may not see it, but we're also grasping at pain. And when the impulse of disappointment, of sadness, of misery, of despair comes along, we can't help but grasp at that. And so we grasp at one, we grasp at the other. So the Buddha's teaching was very much, uh, and with regards to renunciation, was all the skillful means, like, for instance, this thing of not eating in the evening. It's not a moral question. There's nothing immoral about having, having food in the evening or or going to an orchestra or whatever. It's not, we're not talking about moral issues here. We're talking about the ability to exercise this spiritual muscle of saying no when we need to. And, and the understanding behind that is if you know how to say no, then you know how to say yes. You can really deeply relax and deeply trust if you've got the sense of this ability to protect yourself when you need to. If we don't know how to say no, then we end up being excessively vulnerable. Just as a child doesn't know how to say no, the child is vulnerable to being unnecessarily hurt. So in the uh, spiritual traditions and um, certainly in the, the Buddhist teachings, it's uh, often misunderstood. It seems to be that certainly the more materialistic people's thinking is, the more they misperceive the form and the spirit are quite different dimensions. 
The form of this rule is like this, but that's not the point. The point of saying no to our impulse to eat in the evening is so that we know how to let go. That's the point. That's the essence. And, and this is uh, something that gets misunderstood right across the board and, uh, in all aspects of life, but certainly in the spiritual traditions. You know, for instance, uh, spiritual buildings. You, know, you, you want to protect yourself from the elements. You don't want to get snowed on and rained on and and blown apart, so you need some building to protect yourself. And so, fair enough. That's that's the point. That's the that's the the meaning of a spiritual building. But if we get overly materialistic, if we get distracted by the worldly dimension, we start putting all our energy into building fancy buildings, uh, having massive fundraising projects to build these colossal spiritual sanctuaries that are so beautiful. They've been designed by architects with inflated egos that all you end up is just a whole bunch of tourists coming to look at the place and, and there's no way to meditate anymore because it's so noisy and they miss the point and so often it happens that we miss the point you know, like with meditation techniques meditation forms you know, we're given these meditation techniques and forms so we can exercise our spiritual ability so we can open our hearts, so we can learn to trust, so we can learn to relax, so we can learn to look deeply. But if we misperceive the forms, we grasp the form too tightly, we're busy becoming experts at meditating, desperately caught up in trying too hard, so we end up missing the point completely. And, and instead of <clears throat> actually meditation leading us to a greater sense of ease and well-being, we become more dissatisfied, more discontented. So people uh, quite regularly misperceive the teachings on renunciation. They think that, <clears throat> for instance, in Buddhism, they think that because the Buddha taught non-attachment, he was taking a position against the world, or against pleasure. The Buddha wasn't taking a fixed position against anything or for anything. The Buddha realized deeply that since all conditions are changing, that if you attach to anything, if you fix to anything, you're creating suffering. Guaranteed. So the Buddha's not taking a position for or against anything. And so the teaching on non-attachment is not against the world, it's not against pleasure, but it's, it's picking up the forms, the disciplines, the spiritual teachings so that we're able to, so we're equipped, so we're equipped to investigate so we can look beyond the way things appear to be. We can, we can so easily be fooled by the way something appears to be and react according to that. But we're missing the point, we're missing the message. And our worldly mind, our mind that's conditioned by previous habits, is often takes us in the wrong direction. We, for instance, think that when we make mistakes, that that's a sign of how, how much of a failure we are. When in fact making mistakes is often the very place where, the only place where we can really learn. And if we haven't prepared ourselves for that, then we jump to conclusions and we misperceive things. And, and this, is, this is not just a new disease, this is not just something for modern people, this is not just something for Westerners, it's always been this way, that we misperceive these things. And I remember as a young monk, 
somebody gave me some translated teachings of the German mystic Meister Eckhart. And um, I'd never come across these before and reading them. I, I mean, there was one particular teaching that I was really inspired by where Meister Eckhart was saying that if you want to know God at his greatest, first you must know yourself at your least. And this really rang true. This, this was the same thing as the teachers I was living with in Thailand. Ajahn Tate, Ajahn Chah, this is what they were also teaching. So Meister Eckhart was saying, if you want to know God at his greatest, first you've got to know yourself at your least. The materialistic assumption, the worldly assumption is that if you want to know God at his greatest, you just keep going towards God, imitating God. But what Meister Eckhart is talking about is going the opposite direction, is looking inward at your ungodliness. Or as I've mentioned a number of times before, uh, Carl Gustav Jung is quoted as talking about if you want to get enlightened, you don't move towards the light, but you look into the shadow. Which again goes against a lot of our assumptions. In, in spiritual life, the inclination might be to develop the things we're good at, where actually the spiritual teachers tell us the opposite. It's the places that we're weak that we need to be able to meet ourselves. And, There's a, a similar story from the, uh, the Jewish tradition. I remember reading or hearing somewhere where a rabbi was asked how, how in the past people were always talking about seeing God. And these days you have people talking about believing in God, but nobody talks about actually seeing God. And, and the rabbi said, well, it's because nobody knows how to stoop low enough to see him. So we have these worldly assumptions about what, what spiritual life is about, what's going to help us grow, but the reality is often the actual opposite. And our training often takes us in the direction that we don't want to go and that we're not inclined to go in. Sometimes the exercises that we are given in, by the meditation teacher or our spiritual guides are aimed at asking us to, uh, for instance, concentrate on a meditation object and the initial approach that we have is to apply the, the, uh, the skills, the attitudes that we've grown up with, the things that we use in our daily life, the attitudes we have in our daily life, which is to cling and to focus and to to um, progress and to grow, where the reality is if we, if we are doing what the teacher is really asking us to do, which is to bring mindfulness to what's happening here and now, to let go of our achieving mind and to actually come to an awareness of this moment, then what we start to discover for ourselves is that this very activity of clinging to the goal is in fact getting in the way. And so there needs to be the willingness to let go of some of our initial ideas. So sometimes, again, if we misperceive the forms of the spiritual traditions, we end up getting stuck. We can end up fighting with each other, end up having wars. There's the Protestants, the Roman Catholics, or the Christians and the Muslims, and, and, and yes, even in the Buddhist world as well, so-called religious wars that 
are being fought because people have mistaken the form for the spirit. The essence of the religious teaching is actually talking about letting go of my way. It's not talking about compounding my way and clinging to our views and opinions. It's talking about how can we let go of these things. There's the, um, what you might call, the way things appear to be on the outside, and then there's the way things actually are. The apparent reality is very convincing. That's what our physical senses tell us. That fire is beautiful. I want to put my hand in it, but we've got to learn to say no to it. That impulse to get irritated with somebody and tell him what you think of them, or, or that impulse to have yet another piece of, of uh, another cookie. You know you don't need another cookie. You're already overweight, but that last cookie was so yummy that you think, well, I really need another cookie. It really does appear that way. It absolutely does appear that way. How do we train ourselves to see beyond the way things appear to be? We train the mind. That's the spiritual disciplines. And if we don't do that, well, then we remain vulnerable. So it's not taking a position against cookies. I'm sure the Buddha knew how to enjoy a good cookie when he was offered one. But the Buddha knew how to say no to the extra cookie. And that's the difference between the Buddha and us. Most of us don't know how to say no. We just get fatter and fatter and lazier and lazier as the years go by, which, of course, is... um, not the point, that's missing the point. So there's the apparent reality, which is my way, and there's actuality, which is the way. When apparent reality and actuality are the same way, then we can relax, then we can rest. Yeah. But for most of us, apparent reality and actuality are not the same thing. My way and the way are not the same thing, and so we've still got a lot of work to do. And that's what seems to me to be the point of all the spiritual traditions is to help us do our work, whatever our work might be. And the different religions have different emphasis. The spiritual faculties, we all have them. We all have the capacity for trusting. We all have the capacity for spiritual energy. We all have the capacity for concentration and focus. And we all have the capacity for discernment. These various spiritual faculties that we all have, regardless of what religion we might belong to, we all have them. And these are like our our toolkit that we need to refine down these tools. And if we, uh, if we don't refine them, if we don't do the exercises, well, then they just become blunt. Or if we misuse them, like somebody, as happens sometimes in the monastery, people use a nice sharp chisel as a screwdriver. They unfortunately can't tell the difference between a, a chisel and a screwdriver, and then the chisel becomes unfortunately useless until you really exercise with sharpening the chisel and that takes heat it takes pressure, it takes effort it takes time and it takes skill and so it is with our spiritual faculties <clears throat> and particularly the one that as I said, different religions emphasize different um, spiritual faculties and <clears throat> the Buddha certainly emphasized mindfulness and wise reflection. In this toolkit you know, sometimes we need to exercise trust and faith and confidence Sometimes we need to exercise discernment. Sometimes we need to exercise energy. Sometimes we need to exercise focus and concentration. But always we need to exercise mindfulness. And we can never have too much mindfulness. So mindfulness and wise reflection, particularly emphasized in the Buddhist tradition, as the tools that we use to help us in this inquiry into what is it that keeps us locked into this feeling of limitation. 
We have faith, we have confidence in the possibility of liberation, of realization, of freedom from suffering. We have faith in that. But that's, that's, not the, that's not the goal. Faith is not the goal. Like renunciation is not the goal. Renunciation is a means. Renunciation is a training we do, so it's to help us with releasing the habits of holding. Trusting is something we do as a way of helping us release from the contraction of resistance. And so in the Buddhist teachings, in, in both daily life and in formal practice, we exercise, we exercise mindfulness and wise reflection. Whatever comes up in daily life practice, how do we exercise mindfulness and wise reflection in daily life practice? Well, one of the best things we do is, is to learn from our mistakes. And so if we're somebody who keeps making the same mistake over and over and over again, well, you want to say, oh, right, there's something I'm not learning here. What do I need to learn? And most primarily, for probably all of us, one of the things we need to be addressing is this tendency we have that when we make a mistake, we get judgmental. We default to being judgmental. So instead of saying, oh, I made a mistake, oh, how good that I've seen it. Wonderful. I can begin again. I can learn from this. Instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't have made a mistake. I'm hopeless. I'm no good. Uh, get heavy on ourselves and we don't learn we don't get the message that's missing the point so becoming an expert in life is not the point but it's the capacity to begin again from our mistakes that's the point or like in formal meditation it's not always holding on to the meditation object that's the point but how willing are we to begin again that's the point how willing are we to come back again and learn In daily life practice, the ability to learn from our mistakes, the ability to learn from the environment we're in, from nature. Uh, I think probably one of the reasons many of us went to live with Ajahn Chah was because of his, the way he, he gave examples from nature, from the things around him, from the forest, from the trees, from the vines, from the animals. And, and so learning from the environment that we live in, what works and what doesn't work. I, uh, I, I enjoyed hearing or reading some time ago about the way a flock of geese navigate themselves from one country to another. And they actually don't look in the direction they're going. They look everywhere except the direction they're going. They look left, they look right, they look left, they look right, they look up, they look down. They look everywhere except the direction they're going. But they go in the direction they need to go. Yeah. Now, you look at that, and there's a lesson in that, applying in our daily life. You know, sometimes we're holding on to our idea of the goal of where we need to be too tightly. If we're holding on to the idea of the goal all the time, even if it's the most altruistic spiritual goal about how wise and compassionate I'm going to become or how I should be, if we're holding on to this idea of how I'm going to develop the jhanas and and whatever, holding on to these ideas, these aspirations too tightly, we're never here with this. We're never here with this experience. We don't end up going in the direction we need to go because we're so busy focusing on where we think we need to be going. Now, sometimes in business these days, there are some, some businesses where they recognize that if you, if you impress uh, goals on your workers and then hound them and harass them to keep applying themselves to the goal that, that uh, they end up just getting stressed and not very productive. And, 
and some corporations, some companies these days, they'll actually give people downtime, or pay them to do anything but work because they realize that having interest in what you're doing is more important than just willfulness. Having interest, having well-being, having contentment is important. And contentment, in my view, is actually uh, a more worthy goal than gratification of desire. Now, the worldly mind, the materialistic mind, will see that, usually sees that gratification of desire is what's really good. Yeah. And if we look beyond that, and this is if we engage the spiritual exercises and we, the mind gets a little peaceful and we start to inquire into the nature of desire and the nature of gratification, you see, it's endless. You want this and then you get it and then you're free from wanting for a while and that feels good. But then you want this, and then you get it, and you don't get it, and that doesn't feel good. The gratification of desire is not that great a thing, really. On the apparent level, it looks great, but actually, it's a con. Gratification of desire is a con. Yeah. Yeah. It can feel good, but that doesn't mean to say it is good. Yeah. It, that extra cookie, oh, it can really feel good. Until you stand on the scales next time. You say, oops. <laughs> you get your cholesterol tested. and Oops, I shouldn't have eaten those cookies. That's the way you know, look beyond the way things appear to be. You know, sometimes people who, who suffer acute pain, you know, like migraine sufferers, can be suffering from acute pain and then they take medication and within 30 minutes the pain is just gone and suddenly what happens is the brain flips into euphoria because the release from pain is interpreted as pleasure uh, and it does give a pleasure sensation and this is the way this organism is wired but do we want to live our life in that habitual reaction of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain well that's actually all animals can do you know, they don't have the capacity for reflecting on rising above this mechanism of desire irritation, gratification, relief Desire, irritation, gratification, relief. Yeah. Uh, we had some um, builders on the site recently and one of them was asking me, and not, as not really they do, he was asking, why did you become a monk? And I said, well, it just seemed to me this was a way to live a good life. He says, how can you have a good life when you don't have a wife or any money? Yeah. I said, well, <laughs> okay, well, you've got to go a little deeper. And, and so... Having a committed relationship can be very rewarding. That's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that if it works for you. But, uh, and having money, you know, it's certainly got its place. But what about the place of contentment? What about the place of contentment? We didn't go very far with the conversation. He didn't really, you know, he wanted to get back to doing the tiling. But that is the case. Personally, for me, I find contentment, contentment as a more attractive goal rather than just freedom from the irritation of desire. So we have the apparent and we have the actual. Apparent reality and actuality. And in the Buddha's teaching, there's an encouragement to cultivate these faculties of, of mindfulness and wise reflection so that we can investigate these in daily life, whatever's happening, and in formal practice. In formal practice, the exercises the teachers give us that put us in touch with, with our innate abilities. Uh, maybe we don't even know we've got them. Mm. 
A lot of people, for instance, they spend their whole life looking to be loved. Yeah. As children, as children, we have the perception, quite rightly, that we need to be loved by our parents. We do need it. If children are not loved, they actually deprived. Children need to be loved, unconditionally loved by their parents. And if they don't have it, there's something missing. But as we grow up, we have the task of, are we going to stay in that mode of always seeking love, believing we're somehow inadequate if we're not being loved by somebody else? Or is it not the case that the heart itself is the source of loving? To be loving rather than to ask for love. Uh, to these spiritual potentials that we have, whether it's being loving, exercising equanimity, exercising patience. Now, patience, if we don't have patience, I mean, how far can you get in life? I mean, standing in the queue at the supermarket, if you're impatient, you're just an embarrassment. You can't get what you want all the li- all the time. You know, you sometimes you have to stand in line at the supermarket. And oh, a good friend of mine was recently telling me how they they went through this embarrassing and and painful procedure in hospital. Had to go through a series of medical treatments. It was very difficult, very unpleasant. And as this process was coming to an end, they um, well, they're obviously reflecting on it, which is why they're able to talk about it. But he was telling me how the last two weeks of his treatment he was a real pain in the neck in hospital because he was just getting so impatient. In fact, the nurse threatened to send him into the children's ward because he was behaving like a, like a little brat. And uh, <laughs> Well, we can be like that, actually, in life. We can, we can be like little brats and greedy little children. We don't get what we want. And, and, but the reality is we can't always get what we want. And so learning to exercise these skills of mindfulness and wise reflection in whatever situation we're in. And remembering the Ajahn Chah's teaching, the title of that book, Everything is Teaching Us. That whatever situation we're in, whether it's eating a meal you know, in a restaurant and you don't get the service that you want, what are you going to do? Get all uppity and be rude to the waiter? Or... Yeah, or Expecting to have a delicious, fabulous, gourmet meal every day of the week. Uh, Or we're going to reflect on desire. That's why in the monastery, when we sit before the meal, we sit quietly. Because we want to be interested in seeing the reactions. Wanting, not wanting. Why can't that senior monk stop talking to the lay people and just ring the bell and get on with the food? You want to see that. I mean, it's only going to be a couple of minutes, and actually the senior monk's just being friendly. It's not as if he's being immoral or or something. He's just being nice and kind to the people who bought the food. I mean, it's not exactly doing anything gross. So you listen. What is that? What is that? That's the cause of war. That same energy is the same energy that causes war. We can complain about the politicians not managing the world properly, but how well are we managing our passions? How well are we managing our desires? You can't even have a meal without catching fire. Or listening to somebody who's boring. It's another very good opportunity for practice. 
You know, somebody just going on and on and on about all their personal problems. And you know, as somebody was describing to me recently, it's like, it's like listening to a bad organ recital. You know, they're going on about my lungs are like this, my kidneys are like that, and my heart is like this. <laughs> going through all the things that are wrong with them. Yeah, you know, it's so boring. And so, what are you going to do? Of course, it's easy to tell them, do you know how boring you sound? Why don't you just leave me alone? That's easy. But can we just say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll listen to this. Can we sit there and take it? Can we sit there and take it and practice patience? Cultivating these faculties, whatever the situation is. So we're being mindful around our eating, learning to listen mindfully, and then, ultimately, if we develop these skillful means, then what we're aiming for is being able to die mindfully. You know, I, I don't get that thing that Dylan Thomas, that rage, rage. You know, I don't want to be raging when I'm dying. You know, I don't want to bring it on, but when it's happening, I'd like to be able to go with it. Some of you probably would know Ajahn Punyo Grew up in Ampleforth, went to Ampleforth uh, Roman Catholic College, and was telling me how, how the abbot was asked once, what's the point of religion? And uh, the, the abbot replies, the point of religion is preparing to die. And I think that's a, very, that's a very wise and very beautiful explanation. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Um,